Hello and welcome back to Miss Macintosh, my darling. The commentary portion. This is chapter 62, the last chapter. We are here. Um, I will be publishing volume 2 shortly after I finish this. Um, I cannot make it free until January. And I will take a short break and then we will roll into volume 3. Um, at least the first week of November. All right. Character list. Vera Cartwheel, Esther Longtree, Catherine Cartwheel, Miss McIntosh, Mr. Spitzer, the old clam digger, the stone deaf man. Synopsis. The end is the beginning. The beginning is the end. Paragraph one. Vera returns to conclude the novel. She guesses she could have confessed to Esther about herself if she had been interested. She could have told her that which I had scarcely told myself. Catherine was dead. The house and everything in it was swept away in a storm. The only thing left was the string of pearls Vera wore. She was mourning three deaths and in love with an older love than memory provided. Vera could have described Catherine's death where she had gotten out of bed and walked and all the years had rushed in at once. Mr. Spitzer confessed in what might seem only a shining moment in the long darkness of time or timelessness which brother he truly was, the dead. She couldn't have she could have told Esther about Miss Mackintosh, but I spoke not, for I listened as one might listen for one lonely heartbeat in the midst of the great silence. Um so Mr. Spitzer did confess that he was uh Perone instead of Joaquin. And there's still the matter of him dressing like or wearing articles of clothing uh that jock, uh Catherine's husband who died supposedly in the Alps. So there's still this uh, question of who Mr. Spitzer really was. Was it Jock, who was, you know, uh, he was a philanderer, he liked to gamble, he did risky things. So did Perone. Um, and then uh, when we say Perone killed himself, it was really Joaquim who killed himself. And that kind of makes sense because um, Joaquim's the one who said, you know, he loves the music, he loves the uh, uh, the silent music, the music of the stars, which would definitely put him as somebody who's out there. Um, Perone took over his position. He stopped writing music. He stopped doing any of the, when, uh, when they died. And there's still like a question mark as to whether he, I mean, there was still like a hint, like to how did he die? Maybe Perone uh, murdered him to t take him over so that he could, uh, escape his uh, gambling debts or being, you know, he was, I guess, in heavy debt because of his gambling. And in order to escape that, took over Joaquim's uh, identity. Uh, something like that, you know, has, has been just hinted at. I mean, nothing nothing is told outright, in, uh, but we're all left to, so we're left to imagine this could have happened. Um so, yeah, so then it's interesting to go back and read, and I've noticed it when I go back and read and understand that Mr. Spitzer is really Perone Spitzer. Um, uh, he, you know, he learned just enough law to get by, but basically he retired when, uh, when uh, if we take it that Joaquim died and Perone lived, then prone took over his identity and learned just enough but then he also retired and he did lose his fortune he ended up living by the sea with the old clam digger the clam digger used to be Perone's uh, bookie um, 
he stopped writing music, stopped any of his hobbies of collecting butterflies, any of that. Um, and it would explain him knowing about uh, gambling and everything. And it's kind of his uh, deterioration from there. Because um, then by the end he's acting out. He's, he's hanging out with basically homeless people um, uh, because uh, he himself probably was not well off, he said, because of paying for the funeral and the gambling debts. So that's all very, all very interesting. Vera still doesn't want to talk about Miss McIntosh, or she won't tell Esther about Miss McIntosh. Two, Vera imagines sharing her story with Esther, and her response would have been, so what if my mother was dead? So what difference did that make? So why did I mourn? So why did I care? So who was Mr. Spitzer? So had not everyone lost something? Think, she might say, of those who do not see, those who do not hear. So isn't that what happens? Like, everybody's got a sob story. Everybody has something, you know, to say. Everybody's had a bad time. So, so what? Three, even if Vera did not confess to Esther, it did allow her to speak to myself now for the first time. Through many days afterward, facing that reality which had been a dream and which had crumbled, perhaps into reality, perhaps into a dream if nothing was real, perhaps there was always a sense missing that sense which would make the world real. The senses are only four, sight, smell, taste, touch. So even though Vera didn't tell Esther anything, it still allowed, by listening to her story, it allowed kind of her to process her own story and what she'd gone through. And there's, and young had, has written an essay about the deaf. She wrote about the deaf and the blind. Um, uh, she really liked the, the, she said she interviewed every deaf person in, in New York City for that essay that she wrote um, and how they were mistreated, how they weren't accommodated. So she does have this, I mean, she's trying to say something here and I don't know that I fully grasp it, but it is this, you know, there, there seems to be another sense and we, what we have are sight, smell, taste, and touch. And she's going to talk more about it in the coming paragraphs. Four, Vera thought of the deaf and the blind and all the perceptual reality, devoid of an important sense in its relations they do not see or hear. For those of five. For those of us who do hear, hear, Vera thinks we also need to think of the silence. Yet who among us has not thought of the silence? Some have dreamed the silence as blessed as oblivion. Had not Mr. Spitzer as a musician loved the silence most? And then the silence I think we can take here is death. Some have dreamed the silence as of love, another love, that love which requires no speech but silence. For there are ways of communication which require no speech, and perhaps these are the most beautiful ways. Ways not of the ear. There are ways more beautiful than the ear, the eye. The ear may deceive and the eye may deceive. Farah thinks those that are able to hear do not hear everything, and the deaf ear may be haunted by a constant roaring where sound is not, where sound is the dream of the deaf as speech is the dream of the mute. Or one may hear all sounds except words, be deaf only to human speech, hear not the words which came too late in time, or one may hear head noises, those which have no external existence whatever, which have no bearing on reality, only in memories, dreams, illusions of sound. Mr. Spitzer told me long ago of the silent world, the silent world, which was his only love. Six, Vera remembers her night in the garden before she had seen Miss Mackintosh, my bald love stripped of her illusions, although their lack would be my love, my bald love. She thought about being blind with the loss of, 
Let's see. I think I missed something. Yep. She thought about being blind with the loss of light and all that the creation reveals of the wonders and glories of creation and what remains of touch, smell, and sound. Deafness is loss of all that the light does not teach, loss of all that the ear conveys of reality. And what if one should be deaf? One, what if one should be both deaf and blind? One would be closer to death than now. Seven, in the end, Mr. Spitzer was not needed because all of Catherine's property was gone, swept out to sea. Everything had been carried away in one blinding night of storm coming only a few weeks after my mother's death. My mother had stopped dreaming before she died, and yet who knew she might not still be dreaming? For what had she asked of life but the dream itself? Or did my mother dream now only through me? It was easier for me to believe that my beautiful mother who had died was living than to believe that Mr. Spitzer, who was living, was not dead. Mr. Spitzer had lost everything also, his house and the old valet clam digger. There was nothing left but the string of pearls, and I was poor, and my mother was poor as ever she had dreamed. My mother was poor as if she had been evicted from her house long before she died and wandered like a beggar through the streets. So when Vera says, uh, did my mother now only dream through me, this kind of echoes... Um, Mr. Spitzer, who also thinks about that. Um, Sorry, I had to write something that's pretty, got kind of long. Okay, so this echoes Mr. Spitzer in that one only lives on through someone's memories, and if there is no one to remember them, then uh, if, if no one, if, if, if there is no one to remember, then that person is really gone. And so Mr. Spitzer did a, a big thing of about that of of his utter loneliness because he has no one to everyone he knows is dead he knows he's going to die cousin hannah's even gone he knows he's uh, catherine's going to die before he does and they're uh and perone and so of course you know we're going through joaquim and perone but he's like when his brother no one will be there to remember his brother and when no one remembers his brother then his brother will truly be gone when there's no one left to remember and because he has no child uh, to pass this on to nothing and so vera's you know getting a touch of that that her mother's gone and she's only living through her memories eight vera describes there was a calm long before her mother died a most beautiful time which had seemed like timelessness 
Mr. Spitzer had patiently waited out so many years for this, for one moment of recognition in which my mother might know his love, might know that he was not dead, for one moment in which he might also recognize that love which he had buried in his heart, because she had loved his brother, but not him as he was. He had not dared to tell her this immediately, of course, for fear of bringing great shock to her, so she had it already changed, almost beyond recognition, beyond memory, beyond all love, perhaps but this. He had waited only a little longer, perhaps longer than he should, had waited for that one moment of blinding light in which all should be revealed, and he had been happy to think that he had endured. Perhaps he had hoped that some illusion might still pertain, that some great last deceiving thought might save him and her, or perhaps he had hoped for that long lucidity in which all mysteries should take on other forms and be solved, being not what they were. So Mr. Spitzer has some really beautiful passages here with her and and I think that's coming up so nine Vera had not seen her mother months before her death but she heard there had been many changes in Catherine Vera did not know that her mother started walking and with a change in the drugs she was awake she would have died if she'd kept taking the drugs and she was going to die after waking up and walking if she started I mean throughout the novel like death is the end when you're gone you're gone if she started walking again, there was a chance that she might live longer. Choices were difficult to make and were dictated more by necessity than freedom of choice. She had elected to walk, to return to the world. Long ago, her choice had been between death in the midst of life and life in the midst of death, so that she had made the latter choice. Now the alternatives were death and death, which were like life and life. And no one knew what she had thought. There might have been doubt in hers. Her age caught up to her and her beauty left her. Mr. Spitzer thought death would not know her because she had changed so much, be almost beyond recognition. Catherine's hearing had gone first before her sight. Mr. Spitzer helped her walk and thought she had enjoyed her visit to the world. Vera thought it was better that she remembered her as the beautiful lady sleeping in her swan boat than as an old hag walking with all her colors lost. Mr. Spitzer would remember her as the sleeping lady and her beautiful image would remain forever engraved upon his heart. So I can sympathize with Vera here because you because when a family has died with me, I mean, especially if there's been a big uh, a long illness, that um, that you do want to remember them how they were and not how they and not how they were when they died. So I I can sympathize with that attitude. Oh, and I was also thinking there is a. Um, This might come up. I, I know I mentioned it in volume two. There's one, there's a play, Volpone, I think. There's a play that's referenced in the novel. And when I read the description of the play, I took it out of volume three because I didn't think it, uh, I'll have to double check, see if I did or not. But I was thinking about it last night and I wondered, because I was like, there was nothing that really uh, sounded like, it was something that matched anything in the book. Like there's others, it's like, oh my gosh, you know, you read it and you're like, oh my gosh, you know, that's taken, there's a reference to that. But this one really didn't, even though there was a direct reference that she made to it uh, once I looked it up. But it's so, I, um, the reason I'm thinking about this triangle with Jock, Peron, and Joaquin, and so it was those, so it was a competition for inheritance. And so I'm wondering if that was the reference now. I mean, I have no idea, but now I'm thinking maybe that was the reference that there was some competition between them for inheritance or like to, like Mr. Spitzer to settle the property and Vera to, to get something, but all 
but Vera got nothing because everything was gone. So I don't know if that had anything, if that was why it was referenced to it. I, I really don't know. 10. When she could not walk, Mr. Spitzer carried her and wanted to tell her he had always loved her, that he had waited until the end to declare his love. He had waited until he was, she was old and might understand his love, for he too had grown old and now was like Perone, who could have loved only the ugly and old, ugly in all other eyes, but his for whom the beauty of her face would never be transmuted by time. And he loved her now like Perone, who had died at the beginning and might love at the last moment which came before the end. He had wanted to tell her that he had loved her without shadow or stain or flaw, and with such perfection that not until now could his love be known. He had loved her without stain of mortal love. When would there be that silence in which the voice might be heard? Mr. Spitzer had paused, had waited for a more auspicious moment when he might confess the love of the dead love for the living love. Surely, 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 surely had not waited so long that it might be the dead love whispering to the dead love. And so this one with Mr. Spitzer, this is like right out of a romance novel. Like he's, he's taken her in the carriage. He's got his arm around her. He's riding the, like, you, there's not a carriage, there's a horse. So he's, so he becomes the um, coachman, which is her conscience that uh, when you go with that symbolism that they gave at the beginning of the novel. Um, yeah, so it continues in paragraph 11. Mr. Spitzer waited until they were in a carriage with one hand on the reins and the other wrapped around her waist, for it seemed that he was the only coachman now, and it seemed that his was the only love, the love which he had kept buried in his heart for so long that he could scarcely utter it. And why should he utter that which he had lived? Because, oh well, he knew if he did not speak now, he might never speak, or at least if he spoke, might never be heard. He had waited so long. Her bright eyes listened as he spoke. They were dressed as if they were an old bridegroom and bride. Mr. Spitzer knew well, better than most, that she was dying and yet was his, as if all dreams, though in curious ways, and sometimes beyond our wildest dreaming, do come to their realizations, and all promises, however lightly made, must be kept. And he was realizing both his dreams and hers, even before she passed into a world where there would be only dreams. Mr. Spitzer told Catherine, No, I did not end this. Mr. Spitzer told Catherine that the reason no one had heard his music since Perone's death was that he was Perone, that it was Joachim who was waiting over there where the silence was and where the silence began, that it was Joachim who had died, Perone who had lived all these years in memory of Joachim, with his love which was unfulfilled, unrecognized, unknown, that it was Perone who had come each evening to her bedside, Perone who had hated her, Perone who, living in memory of his brother, had learned to love, to be faithful. He told her with Perone's blue ring gleaming on his finger as the moonlight dashed upon him and her that he was indeed Perone, never a musician at all, knew not one note of music from another note, never a lawyer, knew scarcely the difference between the plaintiff and the accused, had never seen a judge, that for many years, perhaps more years than even she could realize, his life had been this joke, almost a celestial joke, he being Perone, he being that old gambler who had taken the one chance, the chance of life, one moment more than life might give, for he was Perone in this life, Perone who loved her at last as she had loved him, when she had believed that he was dead, that it was Joaquin with his black clouds around him who lived in resurrection and eternity. Joaquin on the other side of the sea, dividing man from man. But all this while Mr. Spitzer had spoken, my mother had not answered, for she was dead. Had died at the beginning of his whispers, he knew, for he felt her body stiffening in his arms. Had died not a moment before, but an hour before. Had died before he could speak. 
Never had Mr. Spitzer felt so sorrowful as then to know that he had been outwitted by her death, that she would never know he was not Joaquin, that life had played this trick on him, old Perone, that all had been deception even to him. I probably need to cut that down, but it's just too good. So, yep, there's the big confession paragraph. Twelve, Mr. Spitzer told Vera about everything that happened at Catherine's funeral. He had an urn and was going to bury Catherine at the edge of the sea. This little urn was breakable. This little urn would be carried out by the tide and would dash against distant rocks. And if the stopper should be unstopped, might not my mother's dreams emerge? For should she ever die who had lived so long the life of the dream, the dream moving through life and death? And should she not be enchanted where old Joaquin waited for her? For it was Perone who waited here now, waited for, waited but a moment longer than there was, and he seemed remarkably controlled, not so much to grieve as to celebrate my mother's death, which he seemed to think was an ambivalence like his own. Thirteen, she, and ha she had Joachim, Mr. Spitzer said. Oh, she had found. She had found Joachim, Mr. Spitzer said, and he had lost Joachim. Oh, it was all over now, or so he hoped. Time would go more quickly now for him than ever before. He had waited for so many years for this event that it could not take him by surprise. It really could not. And that if his own life was shortening now, he little cared. He having only to wait a moment more. His life had never been for more than a flickering moment. Fourteen on the day of Catherine's funeral it was raining. Vera and Mr. Spitzer were the only mourners. Mr. Spitzer said that not only had the vehicle changed, but so had the passenger, and so had the world. Mr. Spitzer spoke with his usual rolling periods as if to assure himself or me by his continued musicality that what he said was true was not quite true. He had picked up enough music and enough law to bring this long affair to its just close, to bring to an end that which he had not begun. Fifteen Vera saw Mr. Spitzer after the storm, and he was grieving and upset over the old clam digger's death, more so than when Catherine died. <laughs> There's the iron. So it's Perone pretending to be Joachim. Joachim was the one who was really in love with her. And Catherine dies and he doesn't get to tell her at the end, by the way, I'm the one that you've always loved. I'm the one that you've, I'm the one who's been by your bedside this whole time. The one that you loved, Perone, not Joachim. And that you're actually going to go visit jo uh, Joachim uh, on the other side. When you thought when you died, you would see Perone. So there's this that whole thing going on. And then the old clam digger dies. And Mr. Spitzer is more upset by his death because he's really Perone than he is about Catherine's death. Ah. 16. So then it goes into the old clam digger, which I really shortened this up because, I don't know, after that, that paragraph, after those couple of paragraphs where, I mean, just she really lets her the full romantic thing go with those couple of paragraphs. And we get drugged back into the old clam digger. And I... I resist that. Uh, that's the one part of, that's uh, something that I really resist when she drags me out of that and to the old clam digger story. So 16, Mr. Spitzer depended on the old clam digger and searched for him everywhere after the storm. The old clam digger had dug so many holes looking for clams that he seemed more like a grave digger. Mr. Spitzer had warned him he would lose himself in those holes one day. 17, Mr. Spitzer hated it when the old clam digger hid himself or buried himself a mockery of death. 18. Mr. Spitzer found the old clam digger becoming more set in his ways. What was the use of this crumbling facade? What was the use of this body's animation if the spirit, the intelligence, had fled and the body remained this hollow mockery, this empty shell so beautifully preserved that one might be the living corpse? It seemed a needless thing. It seemed a lamp lighted where there was no other human being, but only those creatures who could find their way, those who, being lost, had no way to find except the way they went. And many kinds of consciousness which had seemed oblivion as if the waters of life were the waters of death, death spawned upon this shore. It seemed in some ways worse than if there had been a sudden end, a complete oblivion, 
a complete obfuscation of one's senses, thinking perhaps of his own amazed self-pity, which had caused him to extend his fraternal pity to others, perhaps not the most deserving. Was improvement, however, necessarily an improvement? Was not progress always toward a darker shore? 19. Mr. Spitzer confessed he had his doubts as to whether anyone could be really helped, at least toward a permanent solution, a permanent end of life's great problems and vexatious woes, for there would probably be an even greater deterioration simply because of the apparent delay, the suspension of cause and effect such as one might see in an extended dream. And yet, and yet, were there not many difficulties which, though for the most part hidden and invisible, had not been improved by time and these dubious advantages. So this this going back and forth, pe pessimistic that, that was uh, progress uh, necessarily an improvement? Was, are, are, uh, yeah. Is the future going to be that much better? Um, uh, it seems that way just because of the delay in the cause and effect. Um, but maybe it's also hiding some improvement with time. 20. Things seemed like the landscape of an ordinary dream, for what was a dream always but a moving shoreline between two worlds, the place where the water meets the moving shore. Again, this whole thing has been Thallus's uh, water, uh, the world is made. The fundamental, uh, fundamental nature of the world is water, ice and mist, vapor. Mr. Spitzer thought the old clam digger had improved with his help, or he had just ignored the old clam digger's obnoxious habits. He was only now noticing some of those things he had not previously permitted to pass beyond the threshold of his consciousness. And it would often seem that there was now no reason for these activities, and it would seem that this old hermit held up a dark mirror to Mr. Spitzer's illness, his sense of personal loss which could not be mitigated even by another loss. Or perhaps Mr. Spitzer had only wanted to find an aspect of his sorrow repeated in this world, a mere image, a partial image. 21. The old clam digger dug clams even at night. Mr. Spitzer thought the old clam digger was better suited to this place. Mr. Spitzer saw it as only chaos, whether increasing or diminishing. He thought current map makers did not show boundaries between space, and that's why he preferred the older maps. Mr. Spitzer warned the old clam digger, had warned him that he might be carried out, that he might go down, that he might drown, might not return when Mr. Spitzer returned. So Mr. Spitzer's lost everything. So there's Catherine. He's now, he's Perone, he's lost the old, his house, uh, all of Catherine's possessions are gone. And it's like the slate, it's like, it's like the world has been wiped clean, the old clam digger's gone. Everything that knew him um, before, except for Vera, but Vera is not there either, um, is gone. 22, the old clam digger was a good fisherman and sailor. He always returned with the tide. Mr. Spitzer says he lost his best friend, the old clam digger. Mr. Spitzer believed that he himself had not much farther to go. The years collapsed into moments. Mr. Spitzer says for Perone, the old clam digger was his ex-bookie. He had recognized him on the street. Mr. Spitzer had taken him in as a valet. He fished and dug for clams as well. Mr. Spitzer believed that his deterioration had been accelerated by his going, taking all away from him, all away with him. And all that Mr. Spitzer had ever loved, and how now should he pass his time? The powers of habit were very strong. 23. Miss McIntosh had denied the individual, or anything that made one an individual. She favored what was average, what was to be found in the middle way, what was by no means strange, disrelated, unusual, out of time's way. Perhaps she saw only what she wished to see. She had praised the average as if it were in some ways remarkable, even as she was before I saw her plain when she had still seemed to be one whose mind had entertained no wildness, one whose ways could be predicted, merely Miss Mackintosh. 
And so that's the whole question of this. Uh, one of the questions that came up, and in, in, uh, I'm sure I have it from one of her interviews, is that it's, it's the story is about Miss Macintosh because it's this woman who supposedly has lived what the stereotypical average life that people are supposed to live. Not that she did, um, you know, when we find out, you know, her life is anything but ordinary. But she accepted all of the stereotypes, all of the beliefs about the benefit of being ordinary, average, Protestant work ethic, you know, Christianity in that way. Even though she disagreed with, with some of it, she kept quiet. She thought it was not her place to, um, to disturb others' faith. Sorry, I'm crunchy. I didn't realize I've got an ice cube. Um, uh, and so Vera's uh, thinking about that. And so that was the idea. Like, why? She did everything she was supposed to do. Um, so why did she commit suicide? Like, why? She did everything. And so the answer in the book is really because that's not the way. <laughs> so, so the way is not entirely the dream. The way is not entirely reality. You have to find this middle way. You have to find this middle ground in which to live. 24, Vera says her love could come only when I saw beyond the surface of character, when I saw that mediocrity has also its power to crumble into the most phantasmagoric dream that man has dreamed, that had I been less wrapped up in myself, I might always have known her, the other soul, its power, its enchantment. Whatever is average is the dream, whatever is hidden is the revealed. But to Vera, Miss Macintosh would always seem sensible and average and right, so much so that even now it would seem that she had never abandoned her senses, that rather I had abandoned mine, that I had parted with my mind like God in order to dream with God's mind. Vera remembered her more wearing a wig than bald. She had seemed so real, true, firm, undeviating in her course. Perhaps she must seem so even now. So Vera's still taking on that... that Oh, but you're but you're basically a teenager like you're basically she's taken on a lot of that burden she was 14 so she's taken on a lot of that burden that really was not hers she didn't have the resources to deal with uh, adult life she wasn't an adult but she's still taking that that burden on as kids do as as people do 25 miss mcintosh did not see what vera did the beautiful malignancy of the ocean of always moving waters like the dreams sweeping over the dreams Miss Macintosh thought the sea was safe and did not harm if one lay under it, not over it, if one could be if one could but give oneself up and be washed clear. Um, Vera saw the sea as that unimpressionable malignancy of change. That brooding threat, the assault of the unknown upon me, that last enchantment of waters furrowed by nothing but the wind of which the furrow fades. Miss Macintosh saw it as the sure, the changelessness, that war against the land, the sea which corroded great rocks and changed all shorelines. She often thought it had too much trash or too many thing or too many thing washed ashore. Too many things. Uh, get out of here. Bugs. Okay, I'm going to finish. It's going to be... We're going to be finished here in a little bit. Uh, but I got bugs biting me. Okay. Okay, so there was this... There was the sense... That the world is made of water, according to philosophy of Thales. He's important because he's the first one who attributed a force of nature 
instead of some capricious God to how the world works. So that's why he's listed the first. And so uh, she chose, Smaktosh chose that. And that, as Young explained in, in one of her interviews, that Miss McIntosh, so she was, she felt safe under the water, not over it. She felt, um, so she returned to the water. She returned to the source of the world in order to be rejuvenated. Like, like, so that is, I guess, the kind of the reason, like, I guess she's kind of getting this reason, like she didn't, whoa, that's a, oh, that's a hawk. Oh, wow, it just landed on the ground in front of me. Sorry, I have to take a moment to see. Look at you, Purdy. Oh, did you get something? Did you miss it? Yeah, you missed it. Oh, 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 you're going in the bush. Oh. Okay, nope, you took off. He was definitely hunting, but he didn't catch anything. Um, so the idea was that Miss McIntosh um, returned. She returned to... It's like she couldn't couldn't deal with this life, and so she, it was so saying it's a suicide, which this I will ride on anything up and down these streets. It's a four wheel drive. I mean, it's a little ATV. Um, uh, so she's going back into nature to to renew herself, to go going back into the water to renew herself. And so Miss Young saw um, this was she saw a, the way she saw suicide is like it's a cosmic she saw it as a cosmic joke as it's not something that's done in jest not for real so I think I think that's how and so trying to put these two things together it's how Miss McIntosh can okay Miss McIntosh committed suicide but she committed suicide but in her mind she was going back and returning herself to nature in order to be rejuvenated in order to I don't know if to be reborn but at least to be rejuvenated because this life wasn't the reality of this life was too much it didn't that's the similarity between Catherine and Miss McIntosh Catherine says life has failed me real life has failed me so I have decided I'm going to dream and Miss McIntosh had tried to live by rea- by completely by reality, and that too has failed her, and she also needs to return to dream. So you have these two different things, and they're both having to do the same thing, and so Vera's trying to find that middle way. So then this very powerful line is given to you, when life, when life was over, life was over. When one was gone, one was gone. She did not care about all these convolutions and coffins of the dead, the ghostly business, the chambered roaring, the echo, the voice inside the Nautilus, and yet shall I not always remember her? Oh, so that one just, that line just gets me every time. Since the second reading, the first reading, no, first reading, I was just trying to get through the dang book. But after the second reading, I was just like, oh my gosh, that's so powerful to say. So I don't know. Like Miss McIntosh is like, I'm returning to nature to be rejuvenated because this life was not good. And then for Vera to say, yeah, but 
when you're gone, you're gone. Like I said, life is so short and death is so long. So what do you do? Okay. Ah, oh, that line gets me every time. And there's another line at the very end that gets me too. Oops, I have to get through this. Okay. 26. Vera says that Miss McIntosh wore waterproof inside and outside the house. She did not know how to swim. Drowning inside of shore would not be very kind or pleasant. She remembered how she almost died during her baptism. She wasn't sure the old religion would produce the result desired or intended. She didn't share her opinion with others in case she also made others doubt. Her doubt was her own wound. Old habits controlled her, setting her up in these clear ways. 27. Miss McIntosh would get up at the crack of dawn and sing her hum hymns to herself as she ironed. 28. Miss McIntosh sang because it was a habit. She did not want to make a mockery of faith, not one to be as she would have expressed it, the stumbling block in another's path. Lines from hymns are listed. Oh, I misspelled that. Vera says, I myself will awake right early. The waters have drowned us. The stream has gone over our soul. 29. Vera says, my beginning was my end, and my end was my beginning. It was now spring. 30. Vera changes rooms at the tavern in order to escape the noise. While out walking, Vera hears a man's voice. Vera stays silent listening to him. The irrationality of the message impressed me. The man's voice continued in another key, this time inside the tavern. Vera was afraid of him. He came up to her door and tried to enter. Vera turned on the light to try and warn him he was trying to get into the wrong room. 31. The man says that it's the wrong door, the wrong hotel. I be the wrong man. You be the wrong girl. It's the wrong key. It's the wrong world. You is dumb, honey. All other ears must open before this, which it is a silent love. Man loves a silent woman. 32. All night long, Vera hears the man shouting to a woman who was silent. He made more noise than her other neighbors had. Vera, after listening to him, thought, Oh, is not this my love? Dear love, thou art mine. So she hears his voice and falls in love with him. 23. Vera thought there was a rival for his affections, the silent woman he was sleeping with. He didn't know, he didn't even know Vera existed. She felt abandoned and more alone than ever before. I felt illegate even before I had met my love. I felt as if my love were going before my love arrived. Perhaps it seemed to me that the voice of love should have required no sound and should have moved through silences. 34. Vera thought she shouldn't have bothered to change rooms, but the man's voice was different from the rest. She listened to him. He had dressed someone named Lucy Bell. God loves a silent world, for God created it. A man has to go first. He has to rise up before the woman does. It's the way of a man. It's the way of a woman. It's the way of a man and a maiden. 35. The man tells Lucy Bell that he won't marry her, but I be in love with a silent girl that slept in my arms and the cry was gone. I be in love with the silences where no speech is, for never none needed to never be. He says he's in love with the little negro, negro girl. I be in love with not awakening. 36. Vera heard these drifting sentences and jumbled words, none which might seem permanent. When it was quiet, Vera thought she'd only dreamed of this speaker. But I was wrong, for all was real and he was real. 37. Vera met him in the corridor, and he introduced himself as I am a stone-deaf man. Lucy Bell was gone, he heard with his eyes and his fingertips. 38. Vera fell in love with the stone-deaf man and his musical voice. I loved him as a mother might love a child. I loved him as a man woman loves a man. I loved him for the silences and for all the tongues of silence speaking the name of love. He had traveled all over America and only heard the sounds in his head. 39. The stone-deaf man told Vera he'd been deaf since he was 14. He walked about the last he talked about the last sounds he heard 
He had slept for six months, asleep so near to death that it might almost have been his death or his love. So he lost his hearing at age 14 at the same time that Vera found out about, the same age that Vera found out about Miss Macintosh. He had only the memory of sound. It took him a long time to learn to dream. He became a painter and he was also the artist of his life. There was a world of sound buried inside of him. When the white girls turned their faces away from him, an old Negro woman down the road said to him, and what difference, little boy, for you be a man, don't you and you dream on. You be like us now, all must suffers for something that be not their fault. You because your skin be white and we because our skin be black. Dream on, dream on, for life is imaginary and this be an imaginary world. So, the sudden inclusion of a Negro woman plays into the magical Negro trope in cinema television literature. The character often has no past, but simply appears one day to help the white protagonist. They usually have some sort of vague magical power. The character is patient and wise, often dispensing various words of wisdom. Racism historians trace the trope to late 15th century and early 16th century. The magical Negro stereotype serves as a plot device to help the white protagonist get out of trouble, typically through helping the white character recognize his own faults and overcome them and teaching him to be a better person. Although the character may have magical powers, their magic is used to help and enlighten a white male character. 40. And the silence had its tongues, and love came before words were or ever will be, and the darkness loves you, and there is darkness when you close your eyes, and the silence hears you, and we be the silences, because we are all loves, all our loves. 41. The stone deaf man had missed hearing foolishness and foolish chatter. He heard what others couldn't. 42. The stone deaf man makes, a po makes up a poem for Vera. Oh, let me rock, sleep in thy little boat, he cried, and our child will be our ear, he whispered as clouds rustled. Vera, uh, 43. Vera does not know which night she became pregnant. She lost her pearls. She didn't even look for them. I spelled out my name upon my lover's hand, for surely a woman must find some way by which to talk to the silence that she loved. His hand closed over my hand. 44. Vera describes their night together. 45. The stone deaf man wanted them to marry, for legality helped. He claimed they would be the oldest couple that ever tumbled under the trees. They would invite everyone to their wedding. All the flowers, birds, and animals, also, also Esther Longtree, for she was also our love, all her loves, and she was the mother of the stillborn, and she loved us all, and all things hurt or silent or broken or dead or living, and we were all so much like her little children that we might have been the children of her dreams. Esther Longtree would be me. And the last one, which is a great way to end a book in my opinion, or to end this book in my opinion. I didn't quote it here, but paragraph 46 is Vera reads Esther's, Esther's misspelled sign in the restaurant window. So I don't know, uh, but that the mistress, the, the, la the last chapter in Mr. Spitzer with Catherine is just incredibly moving. The last bit about Miss McIntosh is incredibly moving to me. And then this last bit about Esther um, because this uh, leaking heart is described as this sympathy, this great sympathy with the world. I don't know if, no, if it's empathy, but it's this great sympathy with the world. And so, I mean, I, well, I don't know. I don't know if this <laughs> helps or not, but it's like the dream and the reality are always mixed and you somehow have to find some kind of balance. And so no one else, like Catherine, didn't get to enjoy Vera because she didn't have her or was not a mother to her. 
Um, Miss McIntosh didn't seem to, uh, after Vera uh, learned about, uh, learned the truth about her, um, no one had happy, happy childhoods. And then uh, Young said she did introduce the stone deaf man at the end because she wanted to, how did she put it? She wanted to introduce uh, that the novel was too cold and she wanted to introduce this, uh, this, I don't, know how, I don't know how she described it. I'm pretty, I'm positive. I probably quoted it in the, in volume three when we go over the essays and interviews. Um, this warmth to it. So she needed this, this love that was finally requited. So it could be, I mean, there's some things that came up because she makes lots of references to Plato. Philosophy is all throughout the novel. Uh, that this is a big love story. But <laughs> it could be this is I thought of it last night too. I was like, well, this could just be a big love story because you have this and then you have Esther's uh, who's sympathetic for everything, even though she can't help herself. And it seems and she's gone quite mad because of stuff that's happened to her and her trauma. Um, and may or may not have, have killed. Like, I don't think she killed Oliver Stillborn. I think she that part that she's pregnant all the time is in her head. Um, but that there could have been one besides her like there very well could have been uh, um, a pregnancy and either a stillborn or she left it because she didn't know what to do because she was so young Um, that definitely could have happened which just set a chain reaction for everything but um, that that Vera includes all of it and there's some there's a philosophy there too as well as well as um uh, we'll have to go. There's so much. We'll, I'll have to go get into it in volume three. But anyways, um, so I don't know. You can make up all the myths and because of uh, the history and the mythology and the um, especially this this history, you can you can make all this up. This can all exist. And yet, you know, a couple of things that that have been repeated pretty strongly in the novel is when you're gone, you're gone. It's if you're good to live life, (laughs) to live and to make sure you live while you're alive, because life is so short and there's nothing afterwards. So and the only other thing that I can think of, especially when she brings up like social issues and stuff like that, is that there's just no reason to make anyone else's life harder than it already is, than it already can be. So, there you have it. There's the end. Hopefully you got something from it. Hopefully this helped or this just helped, I don't know, helped expand. Maybe so you wouldn't think you went through reading this novel all by yourself. Um, But, yeah. For me, the payoff at the end of the novel was, was worth it. It's been worth it. It's been worth it every time I've gone through it. So, yeah. It's cool. Um, I will take a break and then, uh, I will be back on, uh, the 1st of November, um, to start working through volume three. Um, I'm going to be doing it indoors at the typewriter because I just think I'm going to need to, uh, maybe, maybe that won't be the case, but I think it's probably going to happen. And then, um, um, Volume two will be published, 
probably about the same time, but I can't make it free until January. Good news is if, uh, uh, let's see how quickly volume three goes and I'm working on a new project in November, uh, how quickly volume three goes, I can possibly have all three volumes free in January when that next, uh, free Kindle thing rolls around. So that would be really cool. I, I, I would, I, I would think so. I would think I could, I, volume, volume three is not as long and, um, uh, I think the reading is more, I don't know, goes, goes more quickly. Um, so that I'm pretty sure everything will be, be free come January. But if you just enjoyed this weird podcast <laughs> going on about this one book, um, cool, then that's fine. No problem. You definitely don't need, uh, uh, to turn around and, and get it to get these 600 page paperbacks oh my gosh but yeah there's so much and uh and I loved it I've enjoyed every minute of it I I really have it's something I've been working on for four years and since I'm doing art associated with it by the way learning how to do art and art at the same time which is really fun but it's but it is it's been an incredible amount of fun and then I'm on my fifth reading of the book and going back through and doing like a uh blackout poetry of it and that is just an interesting way to interact with the text again so yeah I love the art part of it trying to put some of these concepts into some kind of art form and then um and then going back through it on the poetry side since the poetry really was her basis so as long as I'm still having fun I'll probably still keep doing the podcast on Marguerite Young's works um I have all of them so I've read Angel in the Forest uh, I've talked to Paper Pills on Twitter. And whenever she wants to pick a date, I'm ready to start the Debs biography. That's the one I haven't read. And then now that I have the Collected Poems book, I will definitely be reading that one. Um, uh, yeah, it's just been a lot of fun. I hope it's been, I hope it's been as much fun for other people as it has been for me. But if not, that's okay because life's too short to worry about that. <laughs> All right, thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed. Um, maybe uh, we'll keep going with this conversation and maybe at this point we're done. And either way, I'm happy you joined me. Thank you. Bye.